You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Welcome to episode 195 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast. We are edging ever closer. Oh, we're just edging. Well, we're also edging ever closer to the 200th episode. Can you imagine that? And we have GameMat.eu to to thank for that. They support us, and they are a fantastic organization. Pre-painted resin terrain and STL files and MDF and pre-painted MDF and mats of all shapes and sizes. Well, what are we talking about? Well, for the real talk with the Pimpcron, we are taking a page out of Edwin Starr's book, and we say, GW... What is it good for? Some of you may say absolutely nothing, but that's not what we're saying in that segment. You know, we take a lot of pleasure out of ripping GW a new one, but do they really deserve it? What are they good for and what have they accomplished as a company? So maybe this is just a another point of view, let's say. We also have a Tesseract Mailbox voicemail from Jordan, and he has a special offer for me, and uh, I'm... I may or may not take him up on it. We'll we'll see. It's it's interesting nonetheless. It may even be salacious. And we also have a want that or want that not with the Tarantulus cult or whatever they're called. Bunch of spider people for Warcry. And let's see if I like them or if I do not like them. What have I been up to? Well, I have painted a Cardassian warband. So they took quite a bit of kit bashing to make them different because... Besides the named character from Heroclix, they only made one other model, and he's just walking with like a phaser in his hand. So I had to do quite a bit of kit bashing to give some of them knives or give them. Um, I made like a makeshift phaser rifle for one of them and different stuff like that. And I think it came out pretty well. I even used some mantic bits from their enforcers to give him like a exosuit and this giant cannon, which is pretty cool. And I realized that Star Trek never really goes into the ground troops and, like, what do they use for weapons, big weapons and things. Now, the original pilot episode of TOS, the original series, they do have a phaser cannon, like a portable, they bring it down to blow up this this cave door, and it's a giant phaser cannon. That's kind of cool. But I don't really recall seeing that in any of the modern Star Treks ever, like any sort of artillery or really any troops. Enterprise had troops, but... They had the Makos, but anyone else, they just have like these brightly colored soldiers running around with hand phasers. It's it's a little pathetic, I gotta admit, but I still love Star Trek anyway. So I have decided to give them all different weapons. I think I may have mentioned this before, so I won't go too much farther into it, but the Cardassians are all painted, and now I am painting my Romulans, and that's about it. Um trying to think of anything else. To be honest with you, I've been quite exhausted. And just been very busy. So when I come home, like a couple days, I just actually sat in the chair and just sat. I didn't watch anything. I didn't read anything. I yelled at my family and threw a beer can at them. Uh, No, but I did. I just sat in the chair. I'm like, dude, I'm exhausted. So I'm going to rebound from that, of course. But just a lot of stuff going on at one time. But we did do a campaign game for brutality at the store and I made a mistake but you know what 
I have only myself to blame, and I really can't get that mad except at myself. So there's one player at the store that's a bit more competitive. I can't quite say Power Gamer, but he's he's a he's quite competitive, and he's part of the Brutality campaign. And he has this one character that he has done his best to min-max and his best to just kick you in the scrotum and hear it pop. Like, just, I mean, just rip your titties off. Like, that's just, that's what he's trying to do. So his leader is all amped up and he's using every single one of his faction trait feats and all of that to amp this dude up. And he becomes, just for one turn, he becomes this Super Saiyan. And I being very exhausted from work and all of that. And I was not, unfortunately, paying much attention to what he was saying in the beginning. Because anytime anybody wants to tell me, oh, my guy has this equipment and this guy, this war gear and this, 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 and this, 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 my eyes start glazing over because I'm like, dude, let's just get to the game, right? Well, I normally ask people what each model does, but he just started spouting it off. And that, I guess, made my eyes glaze over and I wasn't listening. So... His main guy that he super saiyans on turn one, yeah, he is a rampager. So if he beats you in close combat and deals more damage than you do to him, then he can move six inches and pile into the next person. And if he deals more damage to them than they than he takes, then he piles into the next person. And he just pinballs around the board like that. Well, I kind of missed that part because I was kind of tired and I'm just playing this for fun. I was not taking it super seriously. And unfortunately, that was my mistake. Because on turn one, when he charges one of my guys and instantly kills him and then piles into another person and instantly kills them and piles into a third person, mind you, out of five, a third person and also murders them, I realized, oh, I deployed poorly. <laughs> now, the thing with brutality typically is that there's a lot of somewhat powerful stuff in the game, but there's always a way to get around it. So there's like an ordnance upgrade where it explodes. It's basically like a bombshell. When you shoot someone, it explodes and hits everyone else within six inches. But if you are not within six inches of that target, if you deploy everyone more than six inches away, well, then you're you're negating that whole unit's ability, right? Well, the same thing with the Rampager. The Rampager moves six inches. Well, if everybody was seven or eight inches away from each other, then he could have only killed that first person. Well, I wasn't paying attention and lopped them, put them all up together. Now, it did not help that I did get first activation and I aimed and tried to shoot his leader right in the face on turn one before he could activate. And a comp I needed a three up, two three ups, matter of fact, two three ups. So I had two 70% chances. Actually, no, 80% chances Two. So in other words, two, two ups. And do you know, do you know what I rolled? I rolled a one and a two, which is basically the equivalent of rolling double ones on two shots on a two up to hit. So I definitely could have hurt him. He had not gone Super Saiyan yet, and his save is really not that great to begin with. So it's not like it was a guaranteed, you know, thing. But, oh my gosh, I, I could have done something to him and rolled utter crap. Then, of course, my deployment did not help at all. Now, I was happy that I was able to kill three out of five of his people with my remaining two models. I made very good use of my faction feats and my faction trait 
and my Path of Coin abilities and all that. I made very good use of that. So I was with only two, starting on turn one, it was two people to five people. I was able to kill three people and almost a fourth with my two remaining people. And what I ended up doing is just ignoring his Super Saiyan guy. Although past the first turn, he was no longer Super Saiyan anyway. But yeah, he stacked a bunch of rules all together, which is perfectly legal. But it was pretty rough. And I only had myself to blame. Just like if you get caught up in an ordinance blast, you only have yourself to blame. So I really couldn't get mad at him. He's following all the rules, but it was, it was pretty funny, actually. Actually, no, it wasn't. I cried. And I peed as hard as I could. I'm not certain. There's a point where I feel like I might have actually cried more than I peed. But generally, I think the urine was outweighing the tears. So, anyway, that's what I've been up to. And I think that's about it. So, my friend TJ's printing me a bunch of corridors and rooms to make my own Star Trek ship and its crew. Which I'm super excited about. So, I'm probably going to nerd out on that. And that's about it. Let's get on to the next segment. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. Hey, it's the Tesseract mailbox, and boy, am I excited. We have a listener call into the voicemail. And no, it's not Levi, who usually is the one who calls in. Nope, nope, nope. This is a listener named Jordan. And he's got all sorts of suggestions for me, and I I really do appreciate when you guys call in because that makes it so much more interesting. You know, it's a different voice, it's a different cadence, it's all of that, and then I don't have to read your email. Although I'm happy to read your email, but it's just a nice change of pace. So, Jordan has something that he would like to, uh, I don't know, offer me. Let's listen. Jordan, what you got to say? My name is Jordan King. This is a notification call from our Department of Tax Debt and Financial Settlement Services. There are new programs that can help you reduce or eliminate your debt completely. It is possible that your tax debt can now be considered temporarily non-collectible. You can call me at my personal desk, 833-312-32. Thank you, Jordan, for writing in. So this is a little little off topic, but what I do like about you guys as the listeners is that you guys are always looking out for me. You guys always, when you are in an industry like screen door repair, you know, you, you think of me like, Hey, you need any screen doors repaired or whatever. You know, I've got this one guy that he's never admitted to it, but I guess he's a proctologist cause he's always, I mean, weekly messaging me to ask me if he wants, if I want his fingers in my butt. So I'm assuming I mean, like I said, I don't know if he's insured or what, but it's 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 a cheap, I mean, honestly, it's a cheap prostate exam, you know? So, sometimes that's worth it. But you guys are always looking out for me. So, I do appreciate it, Jordan. And honestly, I don't know how you knew that I was in the arrears for my taxes. I don't, <laughs> it's weird. I mean, I know you can find a lot of things on Google or whatever, and I know a lot of you, well, not a lot of you, but... Some of you might be some sort of super fan that's followed me from Dice for the Dice God over to Bell of All Souls, over to Spiky Bits, over to YouTube or the podcast. But Jordan, I'm really impressed. Somehow you knew that I needed to reduce or eliminate my debt completely. And I was thinking just the other day, wouldn't it be nice if my debt 
my tax debt specifically, my tax debt could be considered temporarily non-collectible. Now, I do have a question, Jordan. Okay, I'm going to have to give you a call on this phone number. Uh, temporarily non-collectible, what does that mean? Like you gave me a phone call and I didn't answer, which is exactly what happened here. Like, I don't understand how it's temporarily non-collectible. Now, if you were telling me that you could make my tax debt, I mean, uh, uh, my mound of tax debt, um, my tax debt completely permanently non-collectible. Now, now we're talking, okay? You gotta, you gotta spice this offer up, kind of like the guy with the, the prostate exam offer every week. I mean, you, you gotta spice it up. You gotta do something that's gonna put you over the other sea of people trying to make my tax debt, you know, considered temporarily non-collectible. So I would like you to call me back, Jordan, and let me know exactly what that means. And also, I'm gonna give you some homework, Jordan. What's your favorite Warhammer army? It can be Age of Sigmar, it could be 40k. I'm willing to bet, because of your accent and your professionalism, I think you're a Custodes player. So you let me know, Jordan, whether or not you are a Custodes player. And then also let me know what, you know, temporarily non-collectible means. Did I just misplace it? <laughs> is that what that is? It's like I forgot my PIN number? Is... Is that temporarily? I don't know. Want that or want that not? Well, would you look at the time? That bumper music tells me it is time for want that or want that not. And today we are covering the Tarantulos Brood. So this is for Warcry, which is not a game I play. But you know a game I do play? That'd be Brutality Skirmish War Game. And I'm always on the lookout for new miniatures for that. So... Warcry, from what I've been told, is actually a pretty good game. Uh, that's about as far as my knowledge of it goes. But this Tarantulos, Tarantulos brood is three, six, nine, ten models, and then some like little spiders. So technically, it's thirteen models, but it's some like swarms of spiders. And in case you did not get it, Tarantulos kind of sounds like, you know. Tarantulos sounds yeah they're bee themed they've got stingers and wind no they don't it's tarantulas you guys are stupid tarantulos warband they look vaguely like spiders but they do have a really cool aesthetic overall anyway the leader guy has a spider face mask on and it is really really cool he's got like a fan behind his head sticking out with all these like spider legs and webbing in between. He's got a cool cape. He's jumping up there. He's got multiple limbs. There is nothing to hate about this model. Like it's just fantastic. Next up, we've got some other guy and he's, he's got a web. He's got a net. He's got this really cool impaling thing. He also has webbing behind his head, uh, cloak and all of that. Very cool looking. Another one also has whips and some sort of pike. They all have this sort of webbing thing behind their head. The next one has claws that look like spider legs wrapped to his hand, which is pretty cool. And he's got a scythe. All of these guys have some sort of head ornament coming off over their hood. And they're all wrapped in like bandages, but the bandages are painted to look like webbing. And overall, I think this is a really cool idea. I love it. I... 
I think mostly just because I was the world's biggest Spider-Man fan as a kid, as a teenager and all of that. People knew me as the Spider-Man guy, and uh, that is not something I freely give up. But these, I've always loved spiders. I think they're cool. I think they're creepy. There's a certain nobility in spiders. You know how they, they lie in wait. Most of them aren't active hunters. They're more like fishermen. So they find out where the prey is, and then they set up shop and then hope to catch something. And I always thought that was pretty cool. So I'm kind of just a suckler, sucker for a suckler. I'm a suckler for spiders. Overall, I really like this. Their spears, their size, all of it. And I can't really tell from these pictures if they're just made to look like spider parts or they actually are spider parts. But either way, they all look really cool. There's another one that looks more like an assassin running forward with a cloak and two daggers. You've got a bunch of, like, hooked staves or whatever here. A lot of running. Uh, only the leader has the four arms, but everyone else has two arms. But they all have hoods, and they all have these spider legs over their head. I, I don't... I can't say anything bad about this. There's spider worship in Warband. Go freaking figure. Am I right? And... I just... I mean, I guess, okay, hold on, let me try and pick, let me just try to pick something that's bad about them, okay? <sighs> Tarantulos is a stupid name, okay? I do have to admit that. And they worship chaos in the form of an of the Eightfold Watcher, a bloated cosmic spider. Hmm. That's kind of cool, actually. So anyway, they worship some spider god, I guess, and uh, they're just really neat. I think, uh, now here's, here's the real kicker, 60 bucks. Do you remember when a 10-man squad was $25? Do you remember that? Now here's a 10-man squad for $60. Good God. Uh, 60 bucks. I mean, no matter how cool the leader is with his spider mask and leaping in the air, and he's even, he's basically like a mutoid. He's got, I don't know if this is just a mask for a spider, but, or his face really does look like a spider, but he does have a second set of arms. And he's really cool looking. I don't know if I'd actually spend 60 bucks on this, though. That's my problem, is that they are beautiful. I like the aesthetic. I think they look really cool. There's nothing really I can say about all oh, except Tarantulos is kind of a stupid name. Other than that, I love everything about them. 60 bucks. Hmm. That doesn't sit right with me. I mean, I'm sure they're all 60 bucks, but damn, that seems like a lot for 10 people. Now, they are all individual poses, which is nice. It doesn't seem like you have any repeat poses or anything like that. So that is really cool. And they definitely do amp up the spider aesthetic with the webbing all over their legs and arms and this bandages and all. But uh, honestly, I think it's a want that not for me. And this is an example of how everything can be right with the model. Everything. It can be way up your alley. You could be a Spider-Man fan your whole life, which I've been and all of that, and you love the headdresses, and you love the motif, and you love everything about it, except the stupid name, and then you get to the price point, and then your wallet's like, mm -mm, oh no, you didn't, and I'm like, okay, I guess I didn't, so I basically have to listen to my sassy yet wise wallet and tell it that I won't buy these models. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pimp Cron.
Well, this, of course, is time. You heard the bumper music. It is Real Talk with the Pimpcron. And our main topic for today is, what does GW actually get right? Am I right? It seems like they mess up on every single thing that they do. It's underutilized, it's overproduced, it's price gouged, it's yada, yada, yada. You've heard a million of these complaints forever. Am I right? Of course I am. Don't you ever, ever question that. So there's a ton of things you could say that they did subpar or they didn't release enough of or they released too much of. I'm looking at you, Age of Sigmar Starter Set 3.0 or any of that stuff. But what do they actually do right? If we separate ourselves and stand back just a little bit from how closely connected we are to Games Workshop and their products and their lore and everything, I think we can see that Games Workshop, now, they are the biggest, and they were the first biggest miniatures game, essentially, that have been this big. So, once you are on top, it is very easy to stay on top, as long as you don't screw up too badly. And even if you do screw up too badly, you may still be able to recover it, which is what Games Workshop has done in the past. They did screw up. They got rid of all their social media. They got rid of all their community-oriented stuff whatsoever. And they took their ball and they went home, like I've mentioned before. But then they turned it around. They suddenly became good guy GW. And with 8th edition, we started thinking, oh man, they are for the people now. They're for the players, etc., etc. Because a lot of the things were becoming a little more narrative. A lot of the things are becoming more streamlined and user-friendly and new person-friendly and all of that. And now maybe some people could argue that it's kind of going the opposite way where it's super not user-friendly and super not new person-friendly. But... You know, that's how that goes. That's the ebb and flow of the game and the the company. But overall, when you look at Games Workshop as a whole, there are many, many things they've done right. And matter of fact, they are the first and only company to stay on top this big and this long to this extent. So let's take a look at what they've actually accomplished. If you disregard all the small games that they've done, the, um, what do they call them, the specialist games, if you ignore all those, they have succeeded in making two, if not three, of the largest war games ever made, as far as popularity and prevalence and all of that. The Lord of the Rings strategy game, Age of Sigmar, and actually Warhammer Fantasy Battles, so I should really say four, and Warhammer 40k. Those are unprecedented. Any one of them can easily trounce any of their competition as far as spread and influence and all of that in sales. So right there, if you're going to judge a company, you basically have to judge it by what they've accomplished. And that is a mighty feat. And they're still on top. Now, it doesn't mean that somebody like Mantic couldn't come up and shorten the gap here, which they kind of did during... Age of Sigmar 1.0, Mantic Kings of War got a big push and they got much larger, but they still pale in comparison to Games Workshop in the number of players, the number of units, all of that. So for all of its flaws, Games Workshop has apparently done something right. Now, as I said, being the top of the industry to begin with, the first big one, think Pepsi or Coke, think uh, Pizza Hut, think of any of the big things that were one of the first things that were big in their field, McDonald's, 
as long as they keep on keeping on, they're going to stay more or less on top. It doesn't mean they can't lose their edge and someone eclipse them, but it does mean that they already have the momentum and most of all, the brand recognition. You know if you go to McDonald's exactly what to expect. You know that you can get some okay food at a pretty darn cheap price, and that's what that is. That is their niche. Well, Games Workshop is the same way. You know that if you play a Games Workshop game, specifically 40k in the in the US, or possibly Age of Sigmar, or to a lesser degree Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings is more of a European thing, but you can go to any game store and pretty much say, hey, what night is your Warhammer night? And they're probably going to have a night, or if they don't have a night, they at least have a club that meets regularly, or they have some players. They have at least one player. It's Pretty hard to say that you could go to any game store that does not have at least one Warhammer player. And you could not say that about Kings of War or any of the others. And I'm not bashing Kings of War. I actually really like the cut of their their jib. But I think that's actually pretty astonishing. The Games Workshop has carved this niche out for themselves. I mean, Malifaux's been in the the orbit of all these war games for years. And while they are successful and while they have pushed the boundaries of miniature modeling and all of that, they have never broken through. I mean, really, if you're talking, if you're asking, if you polled all of the war gamers, right, the majority of them would play some version of Warhammer. And then some of them would play Lord of the Rings strategy game. And then a smaller number of them would be playing Mantic stuff. And then a smaller number of them would be playing Malifaux, potentially, or Infinity, or something like that. And then it goes down from there. I mean, you're talking about they might have 1% of the market share. Maybe not Malifaux. Maybe they have more. But you're getting down to some really, like, bolt action. While it is prevalent, it's not nearly as prevalent as Warhammer. So it might have, what, 5% of Wargamers play bolt action? Maybe? I mean, it's really not much market share. And it's just like that. You might look at Coke or Pepsi, where they might have, let's say, 60% of the market share, and then 300,000 freaking brands split up the other 40% of the market share. I mean, it's like, it's head and shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes over the competition. And that's the same way Games Workshop is. But you have to give Games Workshop credit. Whether they were just the first one out there that got this big or not, they've been able to hold on to it pretty darn well. And let's talk about the miniatures, right? Malifaux has some beautiful miniatures. Um, Infinity has some awesome looking miniatures, although they are all metal, which is not a lot of people's favorite medium for miniatures. But they do have nice detail. Malifaux is all plastic miniatures, and they have fantastic detail, if not a little spindly. Now, they have pushed some of the things in the physical ability to cast models or mold models Malifaux has, but I think it's pretty easy to say that nobody has had the same impact on the industry the Games Workshop has. There are tons of things they've accomplished. Number one, their Land Raider. Their Land Raider, now you might not think much of it now because they've got such huge miniatures, right? But they pioneered a ton of different technology in the industry as far as injection molding plastic and very large things. It's one thing to inject mold and make a small miniature or a two-part miniature or a two-piece or whatever, but it's an entirely different thing to make flat, 
thin pieces of plastic molded so that you can put it together to make a giant Land Raider box. It's a completely different animal. And they were one of the first people to really pioneer that and make it what it was. Another thing is that the monolith was also like a huge achievement for Games Workshop, being able to make something that huge with injection molding. And the list goes on. I mean, they've, they were, they basically have the largest models out of anybody. If you look at the Bloodthirster or Nagash or, I don't know, Bellacore, any of those, they've got huge miniatures that Malifaux or anyone else doesn't even attempt. The Mantic Giant actually is one thing that is quite large. I don't think he's quite as large as the Mega Gargants, but he's quite a large figure, but most people don't even attempt to make such huge models. But Games Workshop does. So they've really been a pioneer in a lot of the AutoCAD stuff, a lot of the injection molding techniques, and all of that. So you also have to give it to them. And, you know, Games Workshop, even besides the lore or the games themselves, Games Workshop is most known for some of the best detailed, most unique, and most creative miniatures on the market. And what about the lore? Oh my gosh, how much lore do these these people crank out every single year? Every single codex has brand new stories and things in it. They've got, you know, millions of pages of Black Library novels written that is all canonical and all backstory and everything. It ties together pretty well. Obviously, everything has some canon issues once in a while, but it ties together pretty darn well. And not to mention all the codexes have brand new stuff and their supplements and all that stuff, the audiobooks and oh my gosh, they have a sea of content for you lore heads. And there is no other company that has that much lore. Matter of fact, a lot of the lore in other companies is quite lacking. I have the Kings of War book. The lore in it is not real thick. I mean, the lore in that is probably altogether less than what you'd get in one Codex of Games Workshop. Once again, I am not hating on Mantic. I really love that company, and I like their games. But I am just saying that Games Workshop is really on top of the ball. And if you look at Malifaux, Malifaux doesn't have a whole lot of backstory either. Now, some of you are going to gawk and go, what? They've got tons of backstory. Yes, they do have backstory, but it's not presented in the way the Games Workshop is. A lot of stuff for Malifaux is anecdotal or short stories or things like that. It's not just saying, oh, this was the battle of this and this, and this is what happened after this, and this is the main players and all of that. None of the material I've ever seen for Malifaux is that detailed in all the movers and shakers. And that may be by design. Same thing with Kings of War and Mantic games. They may do that intentionally, saying, look, this is vaguely what they're like, but we're not going to go, you know, balls deep into the lore here because we want you to be able to make it your own or whatever. And if that's the case, that's fine too. But you still cannot deny that Games Workshop has the most lore and backstory, and the longest running, and the richest backstory, I mean, the depth of it, you can go on all, there's a million YouTube channels online that talk all about the canonical economy, and the socializing, the um, society, and the hive worlds, and all of that stuff, you can just go on for days, and what about the games, I already said they're the biggest, most prevalent games on the world, can you even try, you know, I always I always give Games Workshop a, a pain in their butt over their game balance and all of that, but if you're being fair, one codex could have 
I don't know, 40 units in it, 30 units. And then each one of those 30 units have stratagems and warlord traits and psychic powers and faction traits and all of that applied to it. And then they've got different war gear. Like, oh, this one takes a Lazcan and this one takes a whatever. Can you even imagine trying to balance? We always take the piss out of them because they don't balance their stuff. But good God, can you even imagine how many codexes do they have? How many different technical army factions do they have? Like 30? When you talk about all the different Space Marine chapters and all of that, they probably have 30 different factions just for 40k. And don't even get me started on Age of Sigmar. Good God. Like, the sheer volume of rules and everything, it's actually a wonder that it is not more of a convoluted mess than it actually is. And no, I don't want this to come off as me fanboying. I am just trying to clarify that even though they may piss us off sometimes, even though they may drop the ball, or even though they may be shady with some of their dealings and things like that, even though their prices may be going up and up and up, but then again, what isn't these days? Games Workshop is still the top dog, and they're the top dog for a reason. Even though 9th edition is probably my least favorite edition so far since 5th, it still is a good edition. Like, there's plenty to still like about 9th edition. And I have no problem playing 9th edition. And when I do play 9th edition, I have fun. I may ignore, you know, secondaries or something like that, but they've made the game in a way that you can ignore some of those things and you still have a perfectly good game. So, you may hear me piss and moan about Games Workshop all the time, but... Really, maybe we give them too much of a hassle because they are probably doing the best they can. Now, I've heard they've only got two designers for 40k and two designers for Age of Sigmar, which is absolutely asinine. And that is just completely unacceptable from a professional level. But even so, they are arguably doing the best they can with what they have. And they're still on top after all these years. So that's got to count for something. It has to. Whether you love them, whether you hate them, Games Workshop is still top dog, and it is for a reason. So, next week, we'll be back to taking the piss out of Games Workshop. Thank you to GameMat.eu for supporting the show, and thank you to my beautiful, sexy, good-smelling Patreon patrons. I'll see you next week.